Thank you, Peyton and Matt, and those up on the third floor and listening on the first floor and who are watching remotely from home or wherever you might be. My name is Eric, and I get to pastor down here, and I just, this is not in my notes, this is not in my script, I just feel like I have to say this. I just kind of got caught up, like kind of got busted worshiping just then. Um, There was a line, O sinner, will you look at the cross? Will this not suffice? That got me, wow. And then to continue corporately and to hear one another, I just got to hear Joe back there confessing. And Joe got to hear me confessing, and I'm, I'm a little worse than Joe, but Joe doesn't know that. But then I heard the assurance of the gospel, and then we sang the doxology, and then we continued to talk about who God is, what he has done. See, that's, that's good. That's church. And I will tell you, if you don't already know this about me, if I didn't work here, I'd be here anyway. This is where I would come to church. I love what we do. And so I hope, I pray, I really do praise. We prepare all these different technical wonders on all three floors and as you're at home or whatever, that you're actually able to worship, to have a moment where with God's people, you connect with God himself. Because I promise if that happens, when that happens, you won't care so much about all the other little details, you will have communed and connected with God. That we get to look to the one who created us, hanging on the cross, and to say, that will suffice. Now, I want to get started this morning. As Ashley's already mentioned, we are in our sermon series on the book of 1 John, where we've been talking about the overarching theme of 1 John is that God's people would have an abiding assurance that it would be the realm, the sphere in which they exist is this assurance. Because of my confidence in this, it frees me up to do everything else. It's really why marriage is such a big deal. Because of the confidence and the assurance that I have in my mate, I'm actually free to live a life of joy and blessing. And it's that marriage, speaking of which, that I want to reference because once upon a time in a land not so far away, although it was a long, long time ago, there was a girl. And this girl was, <laughs> you have to give me a minute. She was something. And she had all these little quirks and all these little sort of uh, idiosyncrasies. And she had this long raven hair that wreathed the most pleasant peaceful, perfect face of all time, and I loved her. At some point, she finally relented and withdrew all of the restraining orders against me because in that millennium, it was called stalking. Now it's just called like, you know, dedication. But she finally relented, and we began to date, and I loved her, and I loved the opportunity to rediscover all kinds of things about her persistently. And I loved her. And we fell in love and we got engaged. (laughs) That's when it happened. I realized that with her came others. It was a package deal. I didn't really want a package deal. I just wanted to be with her and nobody else forever. And so, oh man, there was this other group of people that I didn't grow up with 
they didn't talk like I talked. Most of them didn't even speak Spanish. Can you imagine? They had a different set of values. They ate foods like black-eyed peas. What in the world? Who eats black-eyed peas? And I had to start realizing that, oh, these people are actually not just an irritant to me, but because they're hers and because I love her, one of the ways I got to experience and enjoy her more was through them. They represented an aspect of her that I could not have known apart from them. And so what was hers, oh man, became ours. And I got to sort of be involved and integrated into a whole group of people that I would never have chosen on my own, and they certainly would not have chosen me. And then there's the other side of the algebraic equation where, oh, when she realized that I came with others too, don't even get me started, but she learned to love them. In time, she will learn to love them. They're hers as well. They're marvelous people. I hope you can already sort of pick up what I'm beginning to set the stage for as we go to our passage this morning in 1 John. We'll be in chapter 2. It sets us up for our big idea, and it goes like this very simply. Knowing God loves others. Now, I cannot make a big enough deal about this, though I shall now try, because John can't make a big enough deal about this. It's really funny when you study through some of Paul's epistles, then when you get into John's writings, they're very different, and you just sort of have to know that. And we actually, without even planning this, Matt, we did this this morning. Some of the hymns that we sing are rich in text, and they tell an incredible theological, doctrinal story and truth, and it's amazing we have to have those things. That's Paul. But then there are times when we just need to sort of simmer in the truth and have it sort of be repeated and let us meditate and mull on the majesty and the mystery and the marvelous, and that's John. John writes the book of 1 John not like a linear Pauline epistle that just goes to A, therefore B, therefore C. No, John's, John's going to pull out his phone and turn on the light and sway a little bit. John needs to feel it and to repeat himself. This is what we call a, a circular letter. He's going to make circular arguments that he'll defend later on in the argument and then refer back to. You kind of have to know that about John. And so by the time we get into 1 John chapter 2, he repeats himself a little bit, but it's not because he's an old, confused fellow. No, no, no. He really wants them to simmer in this truth. So if you got your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to 1 John chapter 2. We're going to read these first 11 verses. I'm going to unpack it as quickly as I can, and then we'll apply it. 1 John beginning in, ver in chapter 2. John writes, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, He's a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, 
I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This is the word of God for his people. May his spirit illumine to all of us this morning. Very quickly back in the beginning of 1 John chapter 2, we have to remember that this comes in a context. John is writing to some people from a place for a purpose. And he himself is a person. He's an old guy, and he does not mince words. He doesn't pull punches. He does not delay. He gets right to the point. Last week, we talked about how important it is that we walk in the light and that the light of God's holiness and the expressing revelation of God's personality, it exposes all of our darkness, and that's a good thing. And so we are to walk into that holiness and purity and revelation because it reveals how much we need of him. Walk in the light. John says, I am writing this to you, my little children, and he's not being condescending. He has a pastoral, parental, apostolic authority of love. My little children, clearly not biological, but just he thinks of his role in their lives as an apostle, as a, as a pastor, as a father figure. He says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's adopting the wonderful Bob Newhart model of counseling. Stop sinning. Don't do it. It's bad for you. The sins, is, the sins are, are stupid. Stop doing that. But it doesn't work. We all know better. It's just that we're broken and bent all over the place. But, John says, when you sin, I don't want you to. It's bad for you. But when it happens, and let me just tell you this whole week, because I've just meditated on this, that has been such a giving of the gospel Sin's bad for you. You shouldn't do it. And when you do, man, I love you. Have you ever parented that way? Have you ever been parented that way? Have you ever loved your spouse that way? I don't want you to do those things, but when you do, I am crazy about you. I want you, if you've never... I want you this morning to feel the warm, fleecy embrace from God Most High. As he says, I don't want you to sin. It's bad for you. It cost my son his life's blood, but I love you. Now, if you hear that and you think, oh, sweet, carte blanche, I'll just do whatever I want, then you don't know this Jesus. You don't know him. He's a person. I'm writing so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have, and then we get this wonderful description of Jesus. We have an advocate. The word is paraclete, one who comes alongside and counsels, who comforts, who sort of leans across the microphone in front of the judge and says, Your Honor, I'm sorry, my client doesn't mean that. He's a buffoon. This is what he means. And the father says, I know. Thank you. I love him. And the Spirit says, I love him too. And Jesus goes, oh, I love him too. And I'm like, why? 
we have an advocate. And not only that, listen to what he is, this advocate. He's an advocate with the Father. It is Jesus Christ the righteous. That's surprising. See, this epistle is written quite a bit after John's gospel. What we think is happening in 1 John is probably John is going around to these different churches of the Roman province of Asia, and he's preaching this sermon, as it were, like a commentary on his own gospel. And in the gospel of John, you might remember, he spends a whole lot of time, chapters 14, 15, and 16, talking about the comforter, the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the counselor, who comes alongside to help us. But here John says, we have one that's with the Father, Jesus Christ. And look how he's called here, the righteous. He's good, he's meek, he's a man of sorrows, but he's the righteous. He is that which is set right. You, you have to hear this. When the scriptures call Jesus the righteous one, he is that, the person, the personification of all that has been set right. He is a picture of all that will be set right, and we are found in him. We are to be the walking around little manifestations of that which is set right in this world. See, God's doing a thing. He's not slow. He's not distracted. It has dawned. Jesus is the righteous, the one who is set right entirely. Verse 2, he is the propitiation. Now, I don't know if you have a different translation there. If you do, there's grace for that. But I will highly, highly commend you to find a translation that will say propitiation. Your translation might say atoning sacrifice. That's fine. It might say something else. Because they tried to sort of soften what this meant. A propitiation is an offering that satisfies and appeases the wrath of a deity. And a lot of people were uncomfortable with that. Like, oh, you can't say that God's angry. You can't say that God has wrath. Except for, you know, the Bible. God is wrathful toward sin. And Jesus, the creator of the cosmos, prostrate in the garden as we sung, lifted up, nailed to the cross, is the atoning sacrifice. Fine, but more than that, he makes God propitious toward us. God is satisfied with Jesus' work. There is nothing else at all you or I can or ever do to achieve or earn his affection toward us. God is completely satisfied with what Jesus did at the cross. He is a propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John says, hey, I know what you're thinking, you Jewish Christians here in Ephesus. <laughs> you're thinking because Jesus was Jewish, he just did this for you. No, for all the nations, Philistines, Ninevites, French, all of them, the blood of Jesus is accessible and available to everybody. Now think of that. Here's John, this Galilean fisherman, from the northern rim of the Sea of Galilee, who now has authority over these people in Ephesus, someplace he never thought he would be, saying, oh, the blood of this Jesus that I know, I loved him, I touched him, I saw him, I listened to him, he cooked breakfast. His work on the cross was effective for you. Verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. Well, as you can imagine, for the last 2,000 years, people have wanted to know, well, what are those commandments? What does it mean? How do I know that I know him? Is it by me keeping the commandments? 
And then John doesn't get particularly helpful. He sort of gets a little confusing here. Does he mean the commandments of, you know, like Exodus 20 and the Ten Commandments? Does he mean the entire Mosaic law and code, what we see in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, all 600 some odd commands? Is that how we know? Well, we know that that cannot be what John's talking about here. Saul of Tarsus, all of the Pharisees were blameless when it came to the commandments. And they were not believers. We know that that cannot be it. I think what John's also doing here is I think he's referencing his own gospel, John chapter 9, when Jesus breaks one of the commandments to heal somebody on the Sabbath. So we know that John cannot mean that if you keep the commandments, you know God. If you don't keep the commandments, you don't know God. It can't mean that. Now, let me say that as emphatically as I can because entire denominations are built on that misunderstanding that you have to obey all of those commandments. You have to be gooder, try harder to be better. And that's how you know that you're in. That is a deep, deep, ancient heresy that will bind you and bend you. It cannot mean that. So what is John talking about? Well, let's go to verse four. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Ah, so these commandments, I see What John's going to unpack sort of in this circular, repetitious way is knowing God loves others. It's really a coin with two sides. Knowing God means faith in the Son, that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he says he is. He did what he said he would do. Faith in the Son and mutual love. That's the commands. Faith in the Son, that he is Jesus the second member of the Godhead Trinity, the sendable self of God. He is and he's incarnate, 100% man. Faith in the Son and love of one another. Those are the commands. That's how you know that you know him, that you love others. That's really interesting. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments to have faith in the Son and love his brother is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That's interesting. It actually continues to grow. In other words, I need you and you need me and we need one another so that the love of God that we have, or is it the love of God that we have for him or that he has for us? And John would say, oh, yes, yes. And it only gets perfected in the sphere of one another. Now, that's incredibly, incredibly important. This is how you know. This is the Apostle John, the Pastor John, comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. You profess to be a Christian for some reason. Perhaps it's your nationality, your ethnicity, your upbringing, your background, your place of residence, whatever. But this is how you actually know. You simply cannot get enough of God's people. You are beginning to understand that the way you actually know Jesus more is through the people that Jesus loves. Sort of an invitation to have some perhaps much needed self-examination. Do I actually love these other people? Do I really love Jesus? Or perhaps am I really just the kind of person that doesn't want bad things to happen to me and I want good things to happen to me? Well, the clear teaching of Scripture is that everyone pretty much comes into this world with that sentiment, but that knowing God loves others. That's how we know. I'll continue in verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 
it gets better ever increasingly. That's really interesting that John makes that point. It doesn't happen completely and totally and entirely at our salvation, at our conversion. No, 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 no. It continues to be perfected ever increasingly into the likeness of the Son of God himself and that that happens through others. By this we may know that we are in him. Verse 6, whoever says he abides, he remains, he dwells, he lives, he exists in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Wow. You claim that you love God, but you don't walk or behave in the way that Jesus did. Well, how did Jesus behave? Well, he ate with sinners and tax collectors. He loved the lesser. And I mean, he really loved them. We ought to walk or behave in the same exact way that he did. Verse 7, beloved. I love the fact that John does this. John's modeling great pastoral, apostolic, paternal leadership. He reminds them that despite all the other things that are going on, they are loved. He's going to call them what he's preaching. Beloved, God loves you, and I love you. You are agapetoi. You are those for whom God has a well-reasoned concern. He wants your good, and so do I. Because John, in his dotage in his late 90s, was walking around behaving like his Lord and his Savior, ever increasingly becoming more like the person of Jesus. I love you, like Paul will say in Philippians, with the affection, the guts of Jesus. That's how intensely I love you. So John sets this up for them. Secondly, he roots this in a great old narrative of Scripture. I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. There's nothing new here, John says. When I say knowing God loves others, that's Old Testament, baby. That's old school. All of the commandments that Moses received on Mount Sinai and farmed out through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, all that was was an attempt to sort of systematically codify what it looks like to know God and love others. Like if Moses could have walked into first church Ephesus and heard John preaching this, Moses would have gone, that, that right there, that's it, that's the thing, that's what I was trying to say. And John would go, well, it took you five books. I'm doing it in a sermon. All Moses was trying to accomplish through the law was telling people that knowing God loves others. That's the whole law of Moses. It's an old commandment. And yet, John says something really fascinating. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you. It's old, but it's also new. It's sort of flowered. It's, it's blossomed. You might say there's a bright light that's been shown on it. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is in Christ, and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one that Moses was looking toward, the one that Moses encountered at the burning bush, well, he has come. And it's dawned. It's begun. Now, it's been going for 2,000 years. But there are all these people who are walking around who claim and profess and confess to know God and therefore love others. But unfortunately, Christendom has been one long story of people professing Christ getting better and more efficient at hurting one another. It's not God's plan from the very beginning. 
The darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. It's the already and the not yet. Verse nine, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. John says, I'm gonna be repetitive just so you know that I'm redundant and saying the same thing over again. Because I really want us to simmer in this grease. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. This is your metric. This is your yardstick. This is your litmus test. Whatever bad metaphor you want to employ, how do I know that I love God? It's because I love others. And just like I begin to experience more of my wife through her family, I begin to experience more of Jesus through the people that Jesus loves. Isn't that interesting? Candidly, it's not how we often think about church. Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's really interesting. I hear this all the time. I love Jesus. I just really have no use for his people. I love Jesus. I just don't really see the point of the church to which John would say, you're walking in darkness. If I were to say to my wife, I love you, but so help me God, I never want to see your parents again. Do you think that might create a rupture in our relationship? I love you, but if I ever see your sisters again, we're finished. No, of course not. And so when I hear people say, I love me some Jesus, but I don't have any use for his people or for the church, it hurts because what I understand is there's somebody who doesn't actually love Jesus. They're involved in some transactional mythology that doesn't actually exist. If I'm good enough, then God might bless me and give me a better life than if I'm not. And that's called slavery, and it leads to death. Knowing God loves Others. Let me just give three very quick principles or implications or applications how we can all rub this on ourselves and walk out of here with this. Number one, it goes like this. God is satisfied. If you hear nothing else this morning, I sure hope that one lands on you. God is satisfied. We say this all the time because it emerges in just about every passage that we preach. God poured out the judgment that man deserved on himself so that man could graciously experience and enjoy God forever. God is propitious toward us. He's holding nothing against you. There's nothing you can do to achieve, accomplish, or earn any better standing with him. He sees you. He sees Jesus because he chooses to. God is satisfied. It's all through the pages of the Old Testament. David threw the stone at Goliath. And the scandal of the gospel is that Jesus, in a sense, became the cursed blasphemer Goliath and received the judgment. That's what Jesus did. He threw the stone and he received the stone both. God is satisfied. That's the singularity of our faith and our narrative. In a word, substitution. What do we believe? What do we cling to? What is that differentiator, that distinguisher from all other faith constructs? One died in place as an innocent of the many guilty. Substitution. And God is satisfied. And so God sent his son so that we might become his sons and his daughters. There's nothing else we have to do, but we get to. Since we love him, 
love others. We begin to act increasingly and to speak like him, to think like him, and certainly to one another. God is satisfied. Number two, and yes, I'm speaking to myself on this. They're not in the way, they are the way. I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with people and they go, well, we're leaving our church, we're this church, and I would go to church, but I hate those people, I can't stand those people, and they're just in the way. No, 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 you don't understand. They're not in the way. They are the way. The way you get to experience Jesus is experiencing the people that Jesus loves. Who invite them to your home or invite yourself to their home. Clean out their fridge. Get to know them. They're not in the way. They are the way. Let me say it another way. Others aren't obstacles. They're opportunities where you and I get to experience, enjoy, totally be immersed in the joy of God, but it happens through others. So rather than thinking of these people all these different ways of being not like us or what we don't like or what they don't like, no, no, no. What if we actually began like John to see these people here on the second floor, to see those people there on the third floor, on the first floor, or wherever you are at home, as beloved. What if we actually began to look at one another and go, my God, my God, why have you not forsaken her? Why have you not forsaken him? But you didn't. You didn't before the foundations of the earth. The lamb was slain for him. He's beloved. Now, if we began to interact and collide with one another like that, it would change probably everything. God loves them, and so I love them. I want their good above my own. And then and only then will we draw closer and closer to this God that we claim to know. Number three, only a true Christian can truly love. Save your emails. I'm not going to read them. I know that non-believers can experience love. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the biblical definition of love. It's different than all other pop songs and movies and books that try to give some watered-down, sliced-off version of love. No, no, no. I mean the biblical definition of love that looks like Paul and Silas sitting in a prison in Philippi, having been beaten almost to death, and God says, you're free to go, boys. And they say, no, 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 because if we leave, he dies. Their love of Jesus compels them to stay for the sake of the Philippian jailer who mistreated them. Only a Christian can truly love. Self-sacrificial, your good above mine, my life for you, rather than looking at everybody else's, your lives for me. Only a Christian who gets Jesus can get that. Biblical love has the Son of God stepping out of perfect fellowship, out of glory, into the smell of our fallenness and our sin, and he ascends the cross. But the life of Jesus lives, he lives in and through us so that we can be the kind of affection givers in this world that he was when he walked this earth. And so it's a tragedy when the people who are called according to Christ don't live and love like Christ does. See, knowing God loves others. And I'm not going to let any of us off the hook. I want us to really look at ourselves in the biblical mirror and do some inventory. Do you and I really and truly love the other people that are in this building? 
I'm not telling you that you have to suddenly somehow convert to the cult of extroverts are us. No, I'm not telling you that that person's annoying. Ask my wife, she's married to one. Nobody wants to be this guy. I get it. I'm not saying that, but I have to ask the question. Do you really love God's people? I'm, t- I'm saying that you can literally feel your love for God by your love of people. All these people who don't deserve it, who are less educated or less wealthy than you. Or these people who are more educated or more wealthy than you and are so arrogant and smug. These people who perhaps don't value hygiene like you do or who won't vote like you will in a month and a half or so. Now, I want you to imagine those people serious. I want you to actually imagine whoever it is at this church that kind of drives you crazy. It's okay if you can't think of anybody. You can just look here. I get it. I want you to imagine the people in your sphere of influence, in your family, in this church, on any of these floors or watching from home. Do it. Do it. (laughs) You may be thinking, yes, they're kind of... uh, They're extra grace required, we like to say of one another. Maybe that's just how we talk at my home. Not about you, of course. And I want you to imagine those people. And I want you to imagine that Jesus himself walks in the room and beelines right to that person. How would he look at her? How would Jesus smile at him? that's what it means to be the beloved to look at one another and go my God, my God, he loves you I'm going to grow into that if you'll be patient with me I'm going to grow into that can you just imagine how that would change the world that is God's plan for the world. I am convinced and I maintain that the local church is the hope of the world for that very reason. It's what the entire cosmos on this planet is dying for, for someone to look at them the way Jesus would look at a sinner and a tax collector, because that's how he looks at me. So my prayer is that this would increasingly be a place where our love would be perfected because of how we love and know Jesus. Knowing God loves others. Let me say this in closing. We can get everything else wrong, and we do. But if and when we get this right, (laughs) the gospel will break out of this place in ways we can't even begin to imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done. We thank you for the gospel, the good news, the great story of what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself, yes, but as we also say down here, and to one another. There is no such thing as irredeemable harm between people because of the cross of Christ that dead things come to life. And so, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's in a fractured fellowship, that you would restore and you would redeem that relationship. Give one or both parties courage, confidence in the finished work of your son Jesus to mend that hurt. Whatever it might be, you're bigger you're greater, you're grander. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who is not a believer, who is simply trying to, you know, just be better, to try harder, to maybe get a little blessing from God every now and then, 
would you break forth with the gospel? Give them belief and faith in the Son that would translate into love of other believers. And Father, for the rest of us who are believers, who have perhaps fallen a little bit out of love with the bride, would you rekindle our affection and our attention for your name's sake? We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.